This is the fourth episode of the series Speaking of Migration, and today we're sharing the oral history of a woman named Victoria Ramirez, who lives in San Vicente, El Salvador. She shares about her life and the experiences that marked her life. This includes a bit about her childhood and adolescence when she was poor, but filled with hope. The dreams of something better get interrupted by civil war in El Salvador from 1980 to 1992. In this war, there were communities that experienced it harshly. She tells us of the entrance of soldiers to her community and about the massacres that she has been testimony to. Many people left in exodus from the country to neighboring countries. Many of them went to Honduras, but in the case of Victoria and her family, they went to Nicaragua, suffering the displacement in a very violent way in the hands of the state. I want to tell you a bit about my life, especially when I was a child. I didn't have much. My parents were poor and didn't have many resources to maintain us all. So, you know, we always went through difficulty and were hungry. We had no school in our canton or small village. And when we finally had one, it was difficult to have teachers that come in. They would only come in when they felt like it. So I might have had a chance at one point, but I never went to school. I remained illiterate. My parents, you know, they said I was the oldest one, so I had to take care of my younger siblings. In addition, I was also responsible for getting water from afar in the summers, and we didn't have any potable water nearby. We often had to wait until the water rose so we could gather some and take a small amount to our homes. Well, after that, you know, we were very poor, so reaching adolescence and being single, we were very poor and my parents didn't let me go to the city to work. They didn't let me work and since seeing the great difficulty in my home and my family that was so poor, I thought it was better to get married. So yeah, that's what I did. I got married. But not much changed since with children one has to work double. I didn't escape poverty, but well, since I was working to support my own children and family, it was different. So I had my children and I brought them up with a lot of difficulty, but thank God not one of them died. I worked hard. Yeah, I felt like, well, I was hardworking, I liked working, and I didn't see it as a difficulty. But nevertheless, to take care of and put seven children through school, you can imagine how hard that was. However, I didn't want my children to be illiterate like I was. So that is how we lived. We wanted to begin to have more stability in the home, but then the civil war started. So it didn't allow us to develop that stability in the home. That last year, yeah, that is what it was like. We just couldn't live in the home. When the war started and the war came to our canton in San Juan Pico, La Libertad, this was like 
1977 or 1978, something like that. The war had already been happening in our villages. The authorities would just come into our villages and start beating up on us, beating up on the men. Whoever they found, they would beat up and sometimes take them in, arrest them. Since that time, it was a harsh reality for us, for my husband. Sometimes he wouldn't even sleep in the home. He was always hiding. He would sleep outside, sometimes near water. He would make a bed out of stones, and that is where he would sleep, on top of a plastic sheet or such. And that was similar to what my brothers went through, and my father too, and my brothers-in-law. It affected the whole canton, since it was a big canton, but we were all related. All of us were either Ramirez or Molina. Those were the families that existed, and in some way, everyone was connected. So, when the authorities arrived to harass someone, they would easily find someone to do it against. For instance, they arrived in the canton on July 23rd. 1980, and they just spread out and began to arrest people. They arrested many people all at once. It was similar in nearby cantones. They would capture people and take them away. Often they would be killed. They would order everyone to come to a meeting at the cancha or soccer field, since they said that this is where we always got together, so it would be similar. So they would gather them all and then just rounded them up with their eyes blindfolded using their own shirts. They would blindfold them with their own shirts. They took them to a place called La Quebradon, and that is where they tortured and killed them. They killed 18 men. It was a massacre. It was actually 23 who died that day, but the other five were taken and killed somewhere else. So sometimes our community members would find the bodies, and sometimes they would just be considered disappeared and were never found. So that is how the great persecution of our canton began. I remember one time, there was no one else in the canton, just me and the children. Then my brother-in-law came to tell us to leave too. He had decided to go stay with a compadre of his and told me to go find somewhere else to stay. He had always said I will never leave my canton. He was a catechist and believed he should never leave, but that day he did. And he urged me, saying, look, I am leaving and you should too. So I grew concerned and I prepared some luggage and went out to the street carrying all my children. I was out there waiting for a cart that I knew was offering people rides, but he didn't want to give us a ride, there were just too many people. It was winter and the roads were soaked. And there I was, alone, with my five children, and I couldn't figure out how to get to safety somewhere. So, well, a sister-in-law came around to deliver some things on a horse, and she turned to me and said, Why don't you take the horse, so that at least some of your things and your children can ride it? And she took off, and I went to my other sister-in-law, to a canton a bit farther away. And that is how it was. Yes, it was, It was so hard during those times. You know, I couldn't even figure out what else to do. I didn't even have enough to wash clothes, give the children baths. So I ended up returning to my casita about 
eight days later. So when we were arriving back, a man stopped by near the house. He was an acquaintance. He was a man of order, as he had left the community and had gone to the military. So he turns to us and asks, where are you going? Where are you living now? I replied, now I am here, but I am walking back to my home. So he says, why are you going there? Don't you see it as dangerous? You know that in your community there was a swipe, a rounding up, but now there is still a need to do the cleanup, he says to me. So if you go back and there are soldiers that come around, he says to me, I can actually help you, but I cannot guarantee that the other soldiers will. You know, they, they round them up and line them up. And it was true, because it had not been long since that happened in a place called El Muzote, and they did exactly that. They lined up everyone and killed children, women, even those who were pregnant and young children. So yes, this is what it was like. So I turned to him and said, look, we are accustomed to death. There is nowhere else to go. I cannot go anywhere else. I have no means to go live somewhere else. I just cannot live with others who are also undergoing difficulties. I cannot live under threat all the time. So he said, no, please, don't go there. I can give you my house to live at. I'm renting it, and you can live there. I said, no, thank you. I said, I really want to go back to my own house. So that is what I did. I just couldn't take it. These soldiers had massacred so many men in the place called La Quebradon. We call it the massacre. So I asked him about it, and he said, look, that is nothing. If someone else arrives in town, they will do much worse. They won't just kill them. They'll cut their cheeks off, slice through their teeth. There is just nothing else to do, he says to me. Imagine that. I also complained to him about this person, who we hadn't seen anymore. He says to me, look, try to do what we say. Don't put yourself in danger. He then offered his house again, but I was skeptical. He knew that we were Catholic, that we went to church. Then he also told me, look, also if you continue to follow the doctrine of the old man Monsignor Romero, you know he already died, so you don't have to follow him anymore. Don't follow his doctrine. So I said to him, look, he did not teach us bad doctrine. All he taught us was about love and told us to love other people to care for other poor people so that we would stop killing one another. That is what I told him. So he turns to me and says, yeah, we don't believe in that. What we believe in are weapons. So I said to him, no way, I will never believe in that since I know that one way or another we will die. So what can we do? He turned to me then and said, look, if you go back there, you will die along with all your children. They will massacre you. So I said, well, if that is what God decides needs to happen, what will we do? No one lives forever, so what do we do? He told me, yeah, this is right. So I told him, yeah, what are you doing hanging out with these people? Once they don't need you anymore, they'll just throw you out as if you're nothing. He said to me, yes, you were right, but I am already in it and cannot leave. He said, okay, it's all right then. And then I left to go home. So shortly after, someone stopped by to ask for a bit of food, some tortilla. And shortly after that, the men arrived in the canton again, the military, the squadron. 
They came by and interrogated me, asked who lived in the house, who were we. So around that point, my cousin came by. She was the wife of my brother-in-law. She had also run away. She was on the army list. They were after her and her husband too. But she had run away because she said she didn't want them to kill her in front of her children. She came and stayed at the house for about three days. Since the coast seemed to be clear, it had been a few days since the army had come around. But yeah, then they ended up arriving to the canton. It was September 11th, 1980. They arrived early in the morning, and they killed her, and also my brother-in-law. They also killed an uncle of mine, and his friend. And they stayed overnight, arresting people, searching houses for arms. So we had to leave, again. I went to my cousin's father's house, and I started searching for a way, a permit so that the community could bury them. But we ended up finding her body only after a few days. We found her body near a burned down home. It had been like 12 or 13 days. That is where they took her to kill her. They had covered her up with some old palm tree mats. Well, they finally gave us a permit to bury my brother-in-law, but we were admonished. People from other parts are not allowed to come. If they did, they would be killed. That happened. So then, we stayed working all night and holding the wake, about four of us who were there. Then the next morning, they found her body, about 7 a.m. She was nearly naked, with only intimate clothes on her, and it seemed that her hair had been cut, and she was lying down in a pool of her own blood. They brought her out to a patio so that we could begin to dig her grave, and we could bury her. Then we came up with the need to go to Nicaragua. There had already been a few of the family that had gone there, and they called for us to go. So we made the trip with a lot of difficulty and fear, too. I was afraid that they would capture my husband in the pueblo or on the road, because it sufficed just for the authorities to see the address on the ID showing that we were from the canton. They would stop him. So then they would arrest and disappear people. So I had some luggage and my children, and we all had a lot of fear, but asked God not to allow us to face any problems on the road. One of the things Victoria tells us is about the time in Nicaragua, working in the agricultural cooperative there, but also about climate change. Nicaragua, and all of Central America really, has for a long time, but especially since the 1990s, suffered incredible storms and devastating hurricanes. One of the things that most impresses me about the story of Victoria is her telling of how suddenly rural people have to go when they suffer displacement, whether it is weather or hurricane-related or other, and also what it's like to lose almost everything you possess. Well, once in Nicaragua, they came to ask us if we wanted to work in the cooperative, like in a mixed way, you know, Nicaraguans and Salvadorans together. So I told my husband, yes, go out there to see what the land is like, I'm tired of being here. So my husband and a few others who were there with us, they went to see the land and said that they liked it. So about a month later, after some set of meetings, they took us all out there to the land. There was a huge house, 
which then later was turned into a school. They also used it in times of harvest as a storage to keep the produce that they would harvest, you know, the corn and such. The first year that we were there, they also worked picking cotton in a place called Los Mangos, close to Panandoya. They harvested a lot of cotton, and the money from that they invested in some tractors and other trailers and tools for the cooperative. And so we worked a lot, and the truth is that we were improving our situation with the cooperative. You know how it was both Salvadorans and Nicaraguans, so we all needed to work together to improve the cooperative. So there was not much left for us, just basic food, and so we worked there for about five years, I think. You know, we were not doing great, but we were also not doing so badly, like we were before. We even thought through how to do milpa to get money to send back to El Salvador. As part of the cooperative, the women would sell bread and other things, also to have money to send home. So that is how, even there, we always thought of those who stayed here. We didn't want to just think of us. When I'd eat, I'd always have a knot in my throat, as I thought, oh my goodness, how many people probably don't have any food right now? We got news that there was difficulty here, that people would not have anything to eat for days. If they walked by somewhere where there were fruit trees, they would eat everything, guayabas and more, and leave nothing. They would even eat the leaves. I would think about this a lot, how many people would be hungry, and here I am, eating. So I would have a hard time, and my appetite would suffer too. I wouldn't eat just thinking of them here at home. It was the 10th of April of 1992. At about midnight, there was a loud noise, loud like a hurricane, and it was super hot. I was sleeping outside in a corridor, in a hammock along with my son. I couldn't sleep, it was so hot, and so at one point, my husband Juan says to me, do you not plan on coming in to sleep? I told him I was so hot I couldn't sleep, but decided to go to bed anyway. I told my son to do so too, and suddenly the eruption comes. It had destroyed the hillside and it was mud all over. People would come to us with a bunch of sand with stones. The volcano was erupting and sending up ashes to the sky. People were asking us, what do you think of doing now? I don't know. I asked Nicaraguans, you have already gone through this type of eruption before. They said no, they had gone through many things, but not this. They were moving towards Monte Chico, this was some land that was theirs. The state had provided that land to them, to the cooperative, and so we all said, let's head that way because there is nothing falling on us there. Let's take the children and the women, and the men can stay behind, taking care of everything here, and we all go there in the meantime. So that is what happened, and soon thereafter, the next morning, my husband comes up and says that there is a lot of sand descending onto the houses. They tried to save the houses by taking the sand from one side of the house, but then the other side was filled with sand, and pretty soon the ceiling began to sink in. It was a ceiling that was made with something that I can't remember the name of. The ceiling came down with the sand, and in Monte Chico we got some of the sand blown. I was making tortillas outside and they tasted like sand. I mean, we had protecting sheets to not let the dust come into the houses, but the sand nevertheless was everywhere. 
It had a few pigs, three of them, and one was pregnant, and people were saying, let's not stay around here, we need to figure out how to leave. So we went around grabbing our chickens, our chicks, but we couldn't round up the pigs. We were trying to round them all up fast and put them in barrels, but when we were leaving, then the tractor didn't work, and so we just had to leave them behind. The people there rounded up some of the belongings and got a ride of the trucks that were coming through, state sent. But everything else in the trailer stayed behind. The truck took us to this place called Mampaisiu. The next day, they announced that a train would be available for people to go back to their homes to recover what they could and mount the train. So I went. I was the only one that went, along with my brother, Pedrito. My husband had gone to get the trailer. They were able to make it work. The chicken all died, suffocated with the sand. We tried to see if we could eat them, but they had sand in them, so that was not possible. So, well, it was a great disaster. We left without anything, after having worked five or six years there in the cooperative. We got nothing. The return to El Salvador was done rapidly, as if continuing the emergency mode that accompanied their trajectory of displacement and now return. Victoria tells us of how they got with her family to the community of Santa Marta, the difficulties of arriving there where there is nothing. So we arrived here in 1992. It was June 10th, 1992. That is when we came here to this community, Santa Marta. Our return was mediated by Cryptis. We were repatriated from Nicaragua. So they offered that they would give us housing so we could come back, and here we stayed. We had come back to El Salvador, slept in a hotel, and then in the morning they brought us to Santa Marta. When we were in a truck, and we were very near here, the truck got stuck. It couldn't go on. So we had to walk from there to here, about three kilometers, with all of our things. And it was raining, so there was a lot of mud, and sometimes we would just fall into it. That is how we arrived here. We got here, but there was no drinkable water. There was no energy, no good road. Yeah, it was Unlurb that got us here, but it was Cryptis and another organization that I don't remember what it was called. They were the ones who called us in the hotel we stayed at in Managua and asked if we wanted to return since they were giving out lands here in Santa Marta and also in places like in Rutiu Grande. They told us that it was land and that there was no water, but that there was the river nearby and some small ponds so that we would arrange that issue in the future. So yeah, then we just came and actually had nowhere to really land. We arrived here, but there were no homes. There were a few folks who were already here that, by luck, were putting up a structure with a makeshift roof. And that is where we soon began to have a little school for those children. And we actually started sleeping on top of some metal sheets, and so we built a roof on top of that. Our children slept there, outside, like that, and they were young. I mean, the oldest child was... Mm, she was 17 years old. She was nursing a small baby herself. There were so many mosquitoes, so it was hard to sleep. And with our animals, we had to keep watch so that the mosquitoes and flies didn't eat up our animals. And the rainwater ran very close to the children where they were sleeping. And so we lived like that for about a month. 
Then they came with help and began to construct some of the housing, so we were then able to have our own ranchito or small plot. So slowly we were able to leave behind the dire conditions and the sleeping on top of metal sheets and we began to have a bit more improvement here. And soon the children started helping in the planting of the milpa and then the crops were almost ready to harvest and then came the heavy rains of 1992. So the little milpa we were building, the rain sit away with it. So when it dried up, we have a bit of it left over, but so dry. We had some food for a few days. So that is how we lived through the heavy storms of 1992, and it was similar the next year. My husband's mother had died on September 25th, and we went over to where she lived, over by Opico. When we got there, someone gave us the news that sudden rains had flooded our homes here. It was a friend of ours that told us. We were like, how can you know if we just came from there? Well, they said, it is on TV, there's news from there, we're just seeing it there. And we couldn't believe it and wanted to make sure that it was really our location. We had just never seen such a flooding. So we could see the images of people leaving, headed down the main road, the only good road. Our children had stayed with my mother, so we needed to figure out how to get back, to be able to get there on time to help them. So we ended up all in San Carlos, it was so many of us, and we had been given a food gift delivered there from the Archbishop's office. That was a barbarous loss we had. There was sugar, beans, corn. We had been given a lot to support us those months. We had never gone through a flood and imagined it would be okay to put all of it up in a little mount to be safe from the rains. But none of that was saved. It was all out on the ground and all that was left was the wasps that came around because they smelled the sugar. All of it was lost. You can imagine how hard those times were. The following year it was similar another flooding happened. Actually, this has been a constant ever since we have arrived here. There are many, many floods. We have lost many crops, much of the harvest. Victoria's life has been hard, having suffered so much with displacement and more recently with the phenomenon of migration. She speaks to us about how it is like to feel like the only alternative for her sons and daughters and grandchildren now is to leave. She also explains a bit of what it's like to stay behind in rural El Salvador. My first son told me he wanted to leave, to migrate to the U.S. He was the first one who left, and he went through so much on his way up. He said that at one point he had to get running, and that he had become trapped in the middle of thorn bushes and saguaros in the desert. He was running from immigration officials and hid, eventually being able to get out of there and cross to the other side. The other children also left. They have gone through a lot of hardship. When they turned to me and said, Mom, we want to leave, we're going to migrate, to me it was not a happy moment. It was sadness because I didn't want them to leave, but it is their needs, their desires to improve their lives a bit, which is why they went. There are five children of mine there. Thank God they are all okay, but I know that they suffered a lot on the way up. And also being there, I know that they have days where they don't find work and even worse now with the pandemic. 
they have trouble with housing, they don't know where to go. They live situations that are very hard. You know, hear the people say that we have money because we have so many children in the US, but only we know what they are going through. They are not in a place where they can make a lot of money. They barely scrape a living and maybe are able to send a small amount to their family here, to me. They send a little bit to us so that we can survive, especially to buy medicine. But it is not nearly enough to satisfy all the needs we have. It is not like that. But yes, I do thank God so much that they are alive, and that they are fighting over there so that they can have some stability and fight for the right to have jobs. The last one who left has been a grandson, and his little daughter, and his partner. They went through a lot of difficulty. He told me that the authorities in Mexico stopped him and arrested him, and a bunch of other people from Honduras too. They were all in jail. And suddenly, they opened up the jail and told them that if they wanted to go, that they should go. They were in fear because they didn't know what was happening, nor did they have anywhere to go. They hid in a little house, and then a car came and shone the lights on them. It was three of them, and the man in the car yelled to them, asking what they were doing there. They told him that they were immigrants, and the man said, Get out of here, this area is very dangerous, and God has protected you, because they just kill people here. The man then offered a ride to a hotel, didn't know if they had money, but he took them to a hotel room that night. So then they were finally able to communicate with the coyote who they had paid to take them across, and he came to get them. But oh my god, can you believe me, I have suffered so much. I was so worried with him and his family and his daughter. I would have nightmares that many things were happening to him on the way up. I would stay up all night, cry, pray, but thankfully they arrived alive in the US. It was God helping them. God listened to my prayers because he got them out of trouble and helped them improve their life. They arrived well. So yeah, that is what has happened all along and we have survived. Here we are, thanks to God. And now we have a bit of trouble because my husband is ill, but here we are continuing to fight for life. This oral history ends here. Many thanks to Victoria for telling us about the things she has lived through. It's fascinating how much strength she has to confront so much, and it's revealing important things for the project. That is, to listen to those who have remained in El Salvador and their perspectives of what they live and what they have lived is also part of trying to grasp what is needed in order to think through change or alternatives. We will listen to more stories from El Salvador in the next episodes. Special thanks to Gonzalo Molina for doing the tapings in El Salvador, to Mario Guevara, to Julian Sobel for production assistance and the podcast, Patricia Rodriguez, E. Franco, Amir Mohamed, Ashna Bramhat, and WRFI. <laughs>